Good morning. Good to see each of you. Open your scriptures to Psalm 44. And our children are dismissed. If the parents would like to send them down to their lesson, they're also welcome to stay with you. If this is your first time with us, you're welcome to follow them down, um, meet the teachers and those who will be with them, and welcome to join us back up here. David Hume, in his famous discourses concerning natural religion, wrote this, Epicurus's old questions are yet unanswered. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Have you ever felt like God was asleep? Your God, not everybody else's gods that they profess. Have you ever felt like your God, Yahweh, Elohim of the Bible, is asleep? Have you ever asked Him where He was? It's a legitimate question. In fact, Elijah provoked the prophets of Baal with that very question. What had happened in 1 Kings 18 is all the culturally relevant, culturally accepted prophets of Baal and Asherah gathered, walked the dirt path up to the top of Mount Carmel for a confrontation face-to-face with Elijah, the rogue prophet of Yahweh. 1 Kings 18.19 says, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah gathered to stand off against this lone prophet. Elijah had been called the troubler of Israel. That moniker spawned from the supernatural activity connected to his ministry. Can you imagine the excitement of the false prophets, the religious fervor, the talk behind the scenes that's not recorded in the scriptures about what's going to happen when they have this mighty showdown with Elijah? They get to call on their gods first. And they do so with great religious fervor. Just like people today call out to their gods with incredible energy and zeal and maybe even genuineness. After they pray to him from morning until noon, Elijah steps up and mocks the prophets. And he says this in 1 Kings 18, 27. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep. It must be awakened. It's a little crass, but it's preserved for us in Scripture. Elijah's provocation was effective because what that did is it launched these false prophets into the sadistic practices of cutting and oblations connected with so much religion throughout the world. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures say they raved on. And just like so much religion with all its frenzied activity, In false piety, there was no resulting substance. As 1 Kings 18.29 says, listen to this. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Is God, our God, held to that same standard? It's a loaded question. And if He is, how do we respond when He is silent? And he doesn't answer. 
The narrative continues, and Elijah's Lord acts swiftly and noticeably. It says this, Elijah prays, Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, Yahweh, are God, Elohim, that you, the personal God, are the mighty one, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Believers cheer. The confrontation is over. Baal is vanquished. He's exposed as a fake. And the false teachers are eliminated. That doesn't help us this morning. My point is not to heckle the prophets of Baal who have long been dead, but to ask a question about the reigning champion. Is our God held to the same standard? Does his seeming silence prove he's distant, distant, perhaps asleep or worse, unreal? Elijah provoked the God of Baal with the charge of silence, inactivity, and rightly so. And in a single showdown, Baal was determined to be a counterfeit because he did not show up and he did not speak and he did not show his great might. Baal proved to be, if you would, the disappointing charade behind the curtain in Oz. Here's here's what we're grappling with this morning in this introduction. We live in a world inundated by evil, injustice, abuse, and brutality. And as the floods of wickedness rise, if we're honest to say this out loud, God seems nowhere to be found. I'm simply saying out loud what most of you have already said in your hearts. As we study the accounts of the Old Testament, we find bloodshed, nationalism, a father told to sacrifice his own son, odd religious ceremony with the slaughter of many death animals. And we get the picture that God loves the smell of death. And yet when we call out to him, he is silent. Do you feel the tension? We witness no seeming amazing defeat of wicked people, no silencing of false teachers on our mountaintops. And the world mocks Christians and says, let me quote first Kings, cry aloud for your God is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Let me ask you personally, how do you respond to that charge about your God? Well, it may come as a relief to you that God's people already ask this about God himself. Look at Psalm 44. Look at verse 23. God's people say to him, the mighty God, to Elohim, why are you what? What's the next word? Why are you sleeping? Oh, Lord, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. There's a few characteristics to Psalm 44 that are worth noting. First, unlike Psalm 42 and 43, which seem more personal, pleas from a man in exile, this has very few personal pronouns with the exception of verse 4, 6, and 15. Other than that, the language is all in the plurality. You'll note the pronouns we, 
our, us. It's the language of a nation, of an entire people. The entire psalm, with maybe the exception of two verses, is addressed to God. You and your saturate this psalm. They occur in nearly every single verse. This is not a small assembly. It's not simply David and a band of his mighty men. The we is not a splinter group or a small special meeting, but a very big occasion that involves the entire nation. The occasion is actually unknown, though there's great reason to believe it's the exilic experience of Israel, which would bring Psalm 42, 43, and 44 all together, two individual pleas in exile and a corporate plea in exile But what what matters most is not the precise event that caused Psalm 44, but the content, which I think you'll find surprising. The psalm can be divided into five stanzas. So let's jump in. Five points paralleling the five stanzas of this. Remember, song. It's a psalm of praise. Psalm 44, 1 to 3. And by the way, if the first eight verses stood alone, if they were a psalm by themselves, if it was simply Psalm 44, verses 1 to 8, what you would realize is this could have been some celebration song to to observe some national victory, sort of a a liturgy to mark a grand national occasion like our Independence Day. Verses 1 to 3 describe what God has done in the past. Look at verse 1, Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears... Okay, how our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. Here they are simply in exile, recalling stories they themselves had not experienced. Look at verse two. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, their fathers, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, the peoples of Canaan, but them, their fathers, You set free for not by their own sword did they win the land. Right. Think of the Hebrew conquest of Canaan under Joshua, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. See, God had brought his people into the land that he had promised them, and he did so in such a way that God's people knew it wasn't by their strength or their sword or their tactics. They applied all three in his wisdom, but it was done in such a way that they all knew it was God. For example, Joshua at Jericho. What kind of battle plan is this? Listen to this. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow their trumpets. I mean, if you were going against a walled city in a fierce land, would that be your battle plan? On the seventh day, don't just don't don't just go around once. They rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So now they're weaker. They're more tired. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout. For the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And guess what happened? There's no mention of catapults or trebuchets. They shouted and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city 
every man straight before him and they captured the city. See, that act, this whole act of moving into Canaan, the land that God had promised, is connected to Egypt, the Egyptian slavery, the Exodus, which involves the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. But for some reason, it's the conquest of Canaan that is on the front of the Israelites' minds at this point. Here's what we need to realize. In, in, in the picture, as salvation history unfolds, right? the Israelites did not know about Jesus they knew about a promised Messiah, but he hadn't been born yet. They didn't know his name. They simply knew he was a promised deliverer. As salvation unfolds, God's acts through Moses and Joshua are the truths upon which their faith rests. Salvation, rescue, deliverance, and a new land. And their faith still has an object, and that object is God alone. They acknowledge in Psalm 44, 3, look at verse 3, that it was God who did this, for not by their own sword did they win the land. So this is instructive. As the fathers passed down the stories to their children and to children's children, and the fathers in turn passed these stories down, they did not claim the prowess of a Leonides or an Alexander or the tactical advantage of a Sun Tzu. They pointed back to the warrior God, Elohim, the mighty God. And as these stories are passed down, they're not talking about Joshua. Not firsthand anyway, or as of first importance. They're talking about God. As Psalm 80, verse 8 to 9 says this, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted the vine. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Their attention as these stories are relayed is extremely focused on God, the object of their salvation. And you know, as we look back more than 2000 years later, we look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ. So during the times when God is silent or we face difficulty or even oppression or persecution, we're looking back to and our hero is Jesus Christ. His finished work on the cross are the truths, if we're going to use the terms out of this psalm, are our deliverance, rescue, salvation, and we are trusting in Him by the way with which, in whom, comes a new land, a new heaven and a new earth. Tim Keller said this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. That's the first section. They're looking back and remembering. Look at the next section, because the next section signifies their response of faith. Even though they're in the midst of difficulty, look at what they say, because their troubles will be articulated in the third section. But for now, they affirm their trust in their sovereign God. Look at verse four. You are my king. This is probably the king in exile speaking of God as his king. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. You're hearing from the lips of a man who has learned 
from his father and grandfather and great-grandfather that true victory is not found in his military prowess, but in God alone. The object of faith is always the same. It's God. And here they call out to God as sovereign king. Note these words in verses 4 to 7. Salvation, verse 4. Trust, verse 6. Save, verse 6. And saved, verse 7. That's New Testament terminology totally tethered to the work of Jesus Christ. Here's what's important. They not only believe what they've been told about God, but they're actually appropriating those truths and principles to be true for them in the midst of their reality. Truths about God's character, His presence, His powerful acts, and His covenant. Now in unison, the nation says, look at verse 8. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to Your name forever. Selah. Selah simply means pause, reflect, meditate, don't hurry past this point. You know what you call verse 8? In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. That's called worship. You have a nation in exile, and they're choosing to trust God and worship Him. That's how the second stanza ends, with faith and worship. You have saved us, verse 7. We have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name. So now that's what God has done in the past and they're appropriating it in the present. But now that's going to be tested. And that's the third stanza. And as we move into the third stanza, I want to recall for you what James said in James chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. He said this, the testing of your what? Faith. Produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of our faith looks like, God, why are you silent? God, I'm in the middle of difficulty. Rouse yourself. Are you sleeping? Are you even there? That's what James gives us permission to do, to to endure the fire of the furnace of the testing of our faith. So the amazing acts of God during the conquest are on the Israelites mind because stanza three, look at verse nine. There's a shocking change. There's a surprise and a disappointment. And and, and it's keyed off by this single word. But, and the whole tone is changed. Look at verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. So as we're recalling the stories our fathers told us about the conquest of Canaan and the amazing ways that you intervened, we are only experiencing rout and spoil and scattering and slavery. It is a dark contour on the life of God's people. Look at verse 13. As if you hadn't had enough. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. 
at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Folks, no comment is needed on stanza three because in sad detail it explains itself. The people are not experiencing what they've been told about God. All of a sudden, their reality no longer aligns with the truths they believed about God to be true. Yet what is most surprising is found in the fourth stanza. They're actually going to claim, genuinely so, obedience after heart-searching. They protest to God that, he, that they had not lapsed either into idolatry or apostasy. Look at verse 17, the fourth stanza. All this has come upon us, God, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. And actually, in the original, it can be interpreted dragons, which is interesting. And covered us with the shadow of death. Verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, this is not false humility. This is not false piety. They have not lost national self-awareness. They're actually a people suffering even though they're faithful. They're, just, they're, they're not suffering from disloyalty to God, but because they're actually named by God. Michael Wilcox said in his commentary on Psalm 44, he says, quote, One of the disadvantages of believing in a great God is that he faces you with hard questions. Have you ever felt that? What the psalmist and his people cannot see is the reason why God is doing what he is doing. Just like you, where you sit in your seat right here, whatever you're going through or whatever you're about to go through, you may not always see the reason for why God is doing what he is doing. Matter of fact, Isaiah was so confused. He said this in Isaiah 28, verse 21. Strange is God's deed. Foreign is his work. Or as Jeremiah was commissioned to do. Four negative things followed by two positive things to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, then to build and to plant. It's interesting that in this section, Paul likens the persecutions of believers in his day by quoting verse 22 of Psalm 44 directly in Romans 8.36. We'll close with this in a little bit, but I want to read you the verse first. The Apostle Paul says this to the Roman believers, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's Psalm 44 in the New Testament. The fifth and final stanza is what will God do? We looked at what what did God do? What is God doing? Okay. Now, what will God do? And this is an appropriate plea when our circumstances seem to contradict what we have chosen to believe about God. The stanza contains three why questions. A lot, oftentimes you've been told by religious leaders, don't ask the why questions. Right? Why questions are off limits. You need to suppress those. You just need to keep doing more and trying harder and just you know, saying amen, brother, trust in the Lord and paste these platitudes over your deep angst of soul as you question. Psalm 44 gives you permission to ask why. 
Look at verse 23. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We started off with the story of Elijah's face-off with the prophets of Baal where he looks like a mighty conquering champion. But the next chapter, he's running for his life. Do we dare ask God the same question about sleeping and what if he remains silent? Faith and doubt... By the way, doubt is not synonymous with unbelief. Faith and doubt will coexist until faith becomes sight and doubt is no longer there and faith is no longer needed. But while we walk by faith, we ask this, verse 26, help. Verse 26, redeem us. Why? Verse 26, for the sake of your steadfast love. Will God answer? And the, and the answer to that question is yes, but He may not always answer you in the way you expect Him to. God may answer in a multitude of ways. Let me provide three. First, He may answer you like He did Elijah. After the victory on the top of Mount Carmel, Jezebel threatened this lone prophet. Kind of humorous as you're sitting back in sort of a controlled environment where we're, we're at peace. But in 1 Kings 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Elijah, you're on the clock. You have 24 hours. Look at verse 3. Or listen to verse 3. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. Let me ask you, did you expect that from Elijah? He just confronted 950 false prophets. And now he's running from a woman. He was afraid. He doubted God's protection. He ran into the wilderness flirting with suicidal thoughts. Probably more like self-pity than self-harm because Jezebel was more than willing to take his life away. Have you thought about that? So it's probably more self-pity. He's afraid and he's exhausted and he walks a day's journey. First Kings 19, 4 says this. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down, sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Do you know how God answered him? Verse 5, Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. Do you know exhausted men, exhausted leaders, exhausted people, exhausted Christians can quickly get into trouble? God lets him sleep. He lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. It's the second thing God provides, rest and nutrition. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. 
And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. God provided rest and food, and he prompts him with a simple question two times. And he says this in 1 Kings 19, verses 9 and 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Sometimes that's how God will answer you. Not like you expect him to. He'll provide food and nutrition and a simple question. God then assured Elijah that he is not alone. He says, God says to Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. You don't need to be isolated. Rise up. I still have ministry for you to do. He may answer us like he did Elijah with rest, food, and affirmation. Second, he may answer you like he answered Job. That is, he never explains the why of Job's difficulty and suffering, but what God does do is show him his own glory so that Job trusts him. By the way, the answer that we find in Job may be unsatisfactory to us, but it's not that we have misunderstood or misinterpreted the difficulties in this world because they're real. And it's not that God is no longer in control because he is. Here's the tension that unaccountable things do happen in God's economy. Inexplainable things will happen in our life and we will never receive an answer or an explanation for them here. Why? Either he has not given us an explanation or else if he did, we could not possibly understand it with our finite mind. Towards the end of Job, and we were t- I was talking about this with some of my children this past week. In Job chapter 38 to 42, it's called the divine monologue. After all the friends have their say and Job has his say, God steps in and gets a monologue or a speech. The divine speech divides into two sections. In chapters 38 to 39, I love saying it this way, God gives Job a quiz he can't even answer. And he's challenging Job's knowledge of, control over, and ability to care for God's creation. Not just Job himself, but all of creation. Let me give you an example. Job 38.3. God says this, I will question you. Because through the entire book, everybody's been questioning God. God says, I will question you and you make it known to me. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job remains silent. Verse eight, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Job remains silent. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Verse 12. I mean, who in here caused the sun to rise this morning? Job Remains silent. Or like me in high school on the Scantron. A, B, C, D. Back. Just, I have no idea what the answer is. I just can guess. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? And Job remains In Job 40, verse 2, it hinges now between all of God's creation to two incredible beasts. And God says this to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job remains silent. The second part of the divine speech focuses on two incredible creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. And by the time we move to the very end, we understand that the book of Job is not about suffering. And it's not ultimately about Job or about loss. It's about how creation, humanity, and all of God's creation rightly relate to Him. The real questions that surface from Psalm 44 and the book of Job are these. And they're the same questions we have, and I'll answer them in conclusion. Does God run His world according to justice and equity? God, why are You silent? Well, we need to acknowledge that God is God and we are not His equal. We would not run this world better than God or be wiser than Him or create better landscapes or creatures than Him or be more just and loving than Him. And we certainly would eliminate all suffering even though for some reason God has an incredible purpose for it. We are not God. He is God alone and He is worthy to be trusted. We can't even see beyond the minutes and days of our present circumstances to understand what's going to happen on Wednesday. But God can because He is outside of time and time itself is created by Him. The answer is yes. God is running His world according to justice and equity. And one of my favorite quotes that I've used before by Peter Kreeft, he broadens our perspective by reminding us, quote, people aren't getting away with evil. Justice delayed in God's economy is not justice denied. There will come a day when God will settle accounts and people will be held responsible for the evil they've perpetrated and the suffering they've caused. Criticizing God for not doing it now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. Another question that comes out of Psalm 44 in Job is how is the righteous person suffering to be explained or, it, for that fact, any non-evil person's suffering. It's interesting that Job, verse 40, chapter 40, verses 3 to 4, it says this, in between this divine monologue, it says this, Job answered the Lord and said, and this is all he says in between this, this monologue, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Isaiah 45, verse 9 says this, What sorrow awaits those who argue with their Creator? Does a play, clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute the one who shapes it, saying, Stop! You're doing it all wrong! Can you imagine that? It's, it's actually a very amusing picture. Does the pot exclaim, How clumsy can you be? I mean, if, if a claymation started talking to me, not only would that be horrifically scary, but I would just take it and like, you're done, right? It doesn't work that way. No wonder Isaiah says what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator. And then Isaiah reminds us a few chapters later in Isaiah 55 verse 9, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Evelyn Underhill said this, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Paul says the same thing in Romans 11.34, for who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? H.L. Ellison wrote of the book of Job, 
And we could say, Psalm 44, the book does not set out to answer the problem of suffering, but to proclaim a God so great that no answer is needed, for it would transcend the finite mind if given. The question is, how is suffering to be explained? It's not always, except that we have a God big enough that no explanation is needed. And then the final question, is God sovereign? Is He the one true King over all? Even when He's silent, and the answer is yes, Psalm 44, verse 4, even when they're accusing God of His silence, they say this, You are my King, O God. And as Job testifies at the very end of the book, I love, I love this confession, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. How did Job see God in his suffering? That whole list that Pastor Sean read for us two weeks ago. The Apostle Paul suffered shipwreck and stoning and hunger. This whole list. I remember one preacher saying the reason the Apostle Paul knew God so well is that he needed him so often. He may answer us like he did Elijah or Job, but he has answered us, and this is our final point this morning, in his son. Matter of fact, Hebrews 1 says this, In many times and in many ways, God has spoken to us through the fathers and the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And then he starts to talk about how he's better than the angels and better than the prophet and better than all these other things. And God has spoken. He has not been silent because he sent you the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And, do you know, because of Christ, we something we see something fuller and clearer than even the Israelites did. We know a little better both of who God is and what he is doing. Like I said at the beginning of the sermon, we live in a world inundated by evil, injustice, abuse, and brutality. And as the floods of wickedness rise, God seems nowhere to be found. Yet, He has provided for us an antitype to the ark. And it is Jesus Christ within whom is safety and refuge and salvation. Jesus declared, anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. And John twenty twenty nine, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the Gospel of John concludes with this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, these signs, these seven particular signs in the Gospel of John are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, not death, but God has designed and provided for you life. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, said this, Redeeming love and retributive justice joined hands, so to speak, at Calvary. For there God showed Himself to be just and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. God has spoken to us in His Son. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 12.9, He says to us, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The answer we find in the book, in the book of Romans that sheds light back on Psalm 44 is this. Not, not because of God resentfully, 
but because of Christ willingly, we face death all day long. Let me just read to you the fuller context where Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. Romans 8, 31 to 36. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now he quotes Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake, willingly, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But it doesn't end there. He doesn't end by quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. He continues, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has spoken. He's not sleeping. He sent His Son and He has spoken in these last days through Him. So Jesus can say, if you have seen Him, you've seen the Father. Derek Kidner said this, God's people are caught up in a war that is more than local, and that suffering may not be a punishment, but a battle scar, the price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. So we end with this prayer from Psalm 44. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust and our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, help us. Redeem us because of your faithful love. And ask the music team to come forward. We're going to sing Mighty to Save. Because that is true about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ. We will sing this. Everyone needs compassion. And we do. A love that's never failing. That's Psalm 44. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness. The kindness of a Savior. The hope of nations. My Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. Forever the author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Yes, Jesus conquered the grave. Let's pray.